Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio is... Jason Rosenbaum. And... Joe Manis. And our guest this week... Is John Deal. Yes, the soon-to-be Speaker of the House. In Missouri. Yes. Yes, not in Illinois. (laughs) Yes, not in Illinois. Michael Madigan will be Speaker forever. But even more importantly, I believe he is the first guest we've had on three times. Oh, is that true? Technically four because secret to our listeners, the second time we actually redid it due to oh, a technical man. snafu. Oh, that's right. I remember. A technical snafu. And, 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 that yeah. was, he yeah. was and very... Representative Deal, and, and it was crazy. It was like the next to last week of session, this session, and we managed somehow to get Marshall into the into his office and he kind was of redo very, some of it. He was very nice about redoing yes, it, and yes. now we can all laugh about yeah. it because you now have a 118-seat majority, or actually 117, And the best, best part about that is I knew what questions you were going to ask yeah. me. So the second time around, I could do a better job. So, um, Jason, you're not supposed to reveal our secret shortcomings here. Uh, that's like, all, that's that, what we I We were do. supposed to take that to the grave. Yeah. Was, well, it's just, it bad. just goes to show all of these little buttons, there's a purpose. There is there is a purpose, and right. some can really destroy. Well, that is my role on the audio. politically speaking podcast to embarrass ourselves to tens well, it, and tens of listeners. We, we make your job easy, that's for sure. So let's let's get into it. You are about to be the speaker of the house, um, the I, second in a row from St. Louis area. Yes. So, what do you see as sort of your large goals when you become speaker? Sure. Well, I, you know, obviously that the state has has some. So some issues in terms of being able to, to to compete on attracting and retaining employers, as well as as as, as our next generation of what our industry is going to look like. And I, I think I think really what we have to do as a state, what I'm going to spend my time talking about, are the success stories that we have in the state. How we can emulate that, and 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 how we can provide a positive example, uh, particularly to young people in the state on. On if they do well in school, stay out of trouble, um, <clears throat> work hard, that there are opportunities in this state for them to get a job and to do well and actually be be part of some really cutting-edge stuff that's going on in, in the global economy. And I'm going to spend a lot of time... A lot of time talking about that. You know, a lot of speakers that I've followed, you know, they, they come in and they, they s- express a message that's somewhat similar to that about wanting to improve the economy of Missouri, about producing economic development. And it seems like, you know, since you're becoming speaker, you're kind of professing the same desire, which kind of implicitly implies that the state may not be doing as well economically as you'd like. Like, what would you do differently from some of your predecessors? Well, first of all, I, I don't think it's the role of government to produce economic development. And I don't think, you know, but, but, but I think what we can do is promote what we do well in the state and to encourage what we do well. Um, so, I mean, I don't think it's any, any secret that Missouri is probably not the sexiest place for people to want to locate to. You know, it's not one of the hot areas in the country. We're not where, on where a people, coast, and we don't have a mountain. Yeah, and we don't have real sunshine a bunch of times a year. Yes, we're not North Dakota, obviously. We have and, some nice parks, though. And, 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 yes, frankly, and frankly, though, but also when you look at the state, with the exception of Illinois to our east, you know, the policies in the states that surround us are a lot uh, more friendly to business and, and have what many would consider to be a more open environment to starting a business, to having a business um, relocate there, 
and to provide a culture of, of entrepreneurship. And I think in some, some, some respects in the state, we do things really, really well. Um, I know as Senator Blunt talks about, you know, we sit in the middle of, for example, the, the largest contiguous farmland in the world. Yes. Okay. And and so when you look at that, it's, it's you know, we shouldn't try to be something we're not. We need to take a look at, I, I think the first key to success is knowing what you are and knowing what you, then knowing what you are, what can you do to make yourself better? And 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 we should be a transportation hub. We should be a, a hub for agriculture. And I say agriculture, I don't mean just growing crops. But but what we have is we have the 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 ability to grow crops. But we also have some of the best animal and cutting edge animal and science and plant science research in the world that occur within our within the boundaries of the state. And so, you know, we need to be promoting that because, as I said, we sit in the middle of a, the largest contiguous area of farmland in the state. It's connected by rivers, highways. We have great research institutions in the area of plants and sciences. And so that's a strength. That's what we are, and that's something, that's an example of things that I think we can, we can do better, continue to improve, and continue to, to innovate on. Now... <clears throat> The, you, the General Assembly passed a tax cut last year. Do you envision more tax cuts, or do you envision other ways? Uh, you talked about, in general, some of your goals, but are you talking about tax cuts or maybe or more tax credits? Are there particular specifics that you want to promote? Oh, oh I, I want to fo- – I mean, one, I, I believe all things being equal, the lower your taxes are, the more competitive you are. Um, so I, I think if there's opportunities to cut taxes again, I think that's something we're going to try to take advantage of those opportunities. But this is also about promoting within the educational system that we already spend billions of dollars a year on is <clears throat> focusing, not necessarily spending more money in it, but refocusing how we spend money. Uh, we have by all accounts in the state, thousands of good jobs that go unfilled for a lack of qualified workers for mm. those jobs. While at the same time, we graduate thousands of children from high schools and universities that can't get jobs. So, so that, that, that disconnect right there is something that I think In other words, there's need. not a fit between the education right. and the so, job opportunities. So, so, so take a look at what happened you know, at the old uh, you know, McDonnell Douglas and the old University of Missouri Rollo model where, where the, the university and the educational system worked closely with the industry to learn what those needs were. The industry made a certain commitment to hire a certain amount of graduates every year. Okay, and University, the University down in Rolla became a, uh, a hub that attracted aeronautical talent from across the country. Because they knew that after they got their education, they, they could, could get have a job. job. And, and, and we have plenty of world-class industries and companies and research hubs in this state where we can come in and start focusing, I think, on that. It's not necessarily spending more money, but spending the money that we have in a much better way. Now, one of the newest proposals, and shifting gears here, that the governor just put out has to do with 
toll roads. As everybody knows, the um, proposed sales tax that was supposed to go for it, for transportation was rejected overwhelmingly by voters last summer. Correct. Uh, the governor was not a fan of it. Uh, so, but after the fact, okay. Uh, but since then, just the last few days, he has proposed that the Department of Transportation, I mean Transportation Commission, look at um, toll roads for Interstate 70, which has been a proposal that's been off and on for decades. What is your thoughts about that? This is something that would require legislative action. Um, well, I, I think that's unclear, and I think so. What, what you're referring to is a letter that the governor released yesterday. Yes, um, and I think that letter is curious in a lot of respects and raises a lot of questions as to what the real intent or agenda is. Number one, I don't think that letter says he's proposing a toll road. Although I think it strongly that letter hints said, at it. Well, strongly hints at it. Okay. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And that's a, <laughs> let me finish. Yeah, what It doesn't say that. It says, I want to conduct, and he's instructing. Keep in mind, we're sitting here on, what, December the 10th, I believe it is? Yes, I think it is. Okay. Yep. And, and so, so he's instructed the department. I guess that letter first said, well, hey, we might have a transportation funding crisis in the state. Two years late to the table. <laughs> um, yeah. And then instructs his department to conduct a thorough review and analysis of all of the options available to us and how a toll road on Highway 70 could be done and and uh, how that would free up other sources of revenue. And by the way, do this all by December 31st. So, so either this is going to be the fastest funding study ever done in the history of government, mm-hmm. okay, or there's already a predetermined outcome on it, and he's trying to set up a process to cover what decision he's already been made. Uh, there's a fair amount of debate uh, as to whether or not action of the General Assembly is required or whether he's going to really? try to go it alone. Really? Well, I, I would mean, he have to go it, get it, a vote of the people? Yeah, wouldn't it require – isn't there like a constitutional ban on tolling right now in the state? There – Let's see what he comes out with over the next couple. I, yeah, I, I think he may be trying to move unilaterally on this. Huh. So, well, I'm just, I'm just curious. Why, why else would you come in and say, give me what my options are by December 31st? And Joe and I were talking about this right. offline earlier. Have you ever been to the Chicagoland area? Sure, I've been. Of course he has. Yeah, I'm sure <laughs> you have. Do you, have you ever gone through the tollways there? Yeah. I, I don't recall. I think people who are enthusiastic about tolling need to go through the tollways now, this in is Chicago. Jason Rosenbaum, who, who, is who I'm, part I'm, of his I'm life. a Chicagoland native, and <laughs> granted, if you live there, you can get a little iPass and doesn't cost you as much. But for people that don't live there, it, you literally stop every three miles and pay a toll. Right. And for something like I-70, where there's a lot of outstate traffic that goes through there, I wonder if that's going to be part of the. Concern. Obviously, the, a lot of the debate is like whether a toll road is good or not, but it's kind of those, you know, ancillary questions of whether it would make outside traffic less attractive to go through there, and they may go through another part of the country. Well, no, well, I-70 goes straight west, and I'm not defending toll roads, but but you do have to go through toll roads on I-70 I- when you're in Kansas. So I'm just saying like- And they, 44 when you, correct, as soon as yeah. you cross the Oklahoma They're not border. unheard of. Correct. But if they're, correct. they're set up in a way like Chicago where it's very obtrusive, or like that video that you showed before, I think that's going to be a problem for, for interstate commerce in this state, and it could- be something that will have to be debated right. more, I mean, more grandulate. Look, so. anytime you talk about transportation funding, 
it, it, every option is going to be unpopular. And I, I think the first thing we have to do, uh, particularly in light of you know, what the voters uh, said last last uh, summer, I yes. believe it was. I think first thing we have to do is we have to really drill down and see how we're spending the money we have now. Uh, and some of my members have been looking into this in a fair amount of detail and believe that there's still more um, bureaucracy that can be cut out of MoDOT. They believe that what what government has done is what government tends to do sometime, and that is take money for one pur- purpose and supplant it for another purpose. So we are paying some administrative and bureaucracy functions out of the road fund right now. So I think one thing we could be looking at, too, is can you pull some of that back out, put in general revenue where it's supposed to be and free up more road fund dollars for road projects. Now, what about increasing the gasoline tax? I know that experts say that wouldn't be enough to cover the needs in Missouri, but it might raise some money. would you consider that, or is the Republican leadership pretty much I, against I, I, that? You know, I, I, I don't see a whole lot of appetite okay. for increasing the gas tax. Yeah. So, obviously, we've had a lot of guests on this show since August 9th, Republican and Democrats. And kind of the stock question we start asking them is how the legislature is going to respond to the aftermath of Michael Brown's shooting and the sure. Ferguson outcry. And, you know, when we've had people on this show, it's kind of been – varied about ideas about changing municipal courts, about changes to policing, about talking about the structure of St. Louis County and whether there are too many municipalities. You probably will have the biggest influence on this debate because you direct where some of these bills go. You could send some bills into basically a legislative bottomless pit if you don't like them. So just kind of generally, how do you see the House responding to the Ferguson aftermath and what sort of things policy-wise, should we expect from the Missouri House? Well, first of all, I I think it's a mistake going into the General Assembly in general or at the beginning of a session saying, here's a Ferguson solution. I mean, because let's be realistic. You know, the the things that happen in Ferguson, there's not a law you can point to that if it were changed or something were done differently, then it would have avoided what happened. So what happened in Ferguson is more societal. Now, are there things up there that the General Assembly can affect from a structural standpoint that are long-term? Absolutely. So the circumstances that led to where it is today didn't happen in the course of a week or six weeks or six months. Likewise, it can't be fixed in a week, six weeks, or six months. The... The problems, and this really isn't Ferguson per se, as it is what you see happening in inner cities and some suburban ring, uh, 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 suburban ring counties and whatnot, is is really it's it's a lack of quality educational opportunities, it's a lack of economic opportunities, and it's also, you know, probably. The municipal structure hurts cities that exist just for the sole purpose of collecting fines and finding its citizens. I think creates a lot of cynicism. Um, you know, maybe we need to look at policies that get more police out on the streets, walk in the neighborhoods where there's more interaction and a positive interaction versus sitting in cars ticketing people all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so but but all these things you know are all long term structural yeah. things you know what nobody yeah. very few people talk about is that Michael Brown was a graduate of Normandy High School mm-hmm. okay nobody talks about that okay yeah we had a bill to try to address transfers in Normandy to give more kids an educational opportunity I want to fix this situation I'm not meaning to imply that in any way shape or form but it addresses the long term structural issues and you know the governor vetoed that bill without having any positive solutions on how you address that so so to the extent i think we should address i think we should address it from things that we can truly address and that is long term structural issues educational opportunities economic opportunities the relationship of government to its citizens but then also i think we can you know, and I can use a position that I have to talk about the positive aspects of the state, the things that we're doing right, and the success stories that we have. And I know this might be getting a little in the weeds, but even long before the Michael Brown situation, I recall that you sponsored a bill involving kind of the, I would say, some standards of operation in municipalities. And mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong here, I'm, I'm, I'm going from memory, but it was basically saying that some cities had to go up to certain standards of financing, of policing, or the disincorporation of those municipalities may become easier than it did right. before. Yeah. Yeah, well, what it Would did that be it, something you want to do again? Oh, I, once again, cause I, I think that's structural and it addresses the relationship of citizens to their government. <clears throat> but, yeah, what that bill did was set minimal standards. If you want to be a municipality, you have to have minimal standards of of, of, of operations. That includes passing an annual budget, having audited financial statements, um, having uniformed police officers be the ones that write citations and tickets. It included written use of force policies, among a whole host of other things. And if a municipality didn't, didn't, um, didn't comply with that, that they could be forced through a process where they were disincorporated or incorporate into another municipality that does meet those basic minimal good government standards. Yeah, and it didn't pass, but I think it could be something that's brought up to the discussion because that's been a big issue. Yeah. After Actually, this. there have been a lot of um, legislators that have reached back out to me during the past couple months and want to try to run with some version of that. And I don't pretend that was the perfect bill, uh, but I think it's a discussion and a step in the right direction on structural things that we can do to fix some of the problems. Does it help that you and the House Minority Leader as well, in fact, all four leaders of the House and Senate, mm-hmm. um, are from the St. Louis area? Well, Ron Richards from Joplin. Yeah, correct. Okay. Senate. Okay, yes, right, right. Oh, you said a majority. I'm sorry. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the top because you've got right. you, Jay Cummel, mm-hmm. uh, on the House side. You've right. got Dempsey and uh, Joe Keveny on the Senate side, yeah. talking about the number one in each party. So mm-hmm. the point is, sure. is that all four are from the St. Louis area, yeah. or from the? Does that help or hurt in dealing with the Ferguson issue? Because you at least have more familiarity. I I don't think it really is that material, okay, at all. Because because once again, I I don't think Ferguson was necessarily about the city of Ferguson, right? This could have happened in. Kansas City. We've seen it happen in mm-hmm. New York over the past couple of weeks, and you've seen it. You know, you've seen these issues pop up all across the country, and and I, I think probably what happened in New York has probably helped St. Louis. 
because it's no longer a St. Louis problem. Right. In, in terms of community and policing well, relationships and, and, and the, the perception Cleveland, of that yeah, and, the and, and what's happened in Cleveland. So so this isn't an area, and I think that's something we need to to be careful to keep in mind, that we shouldn't think that you know the Missouri General Assembly can fix this issue. Now, there's some policies that we control that we have been trying to make steps and make progress on. I think you're going to see a renewed uh, effort toward that, and that's particularly, as we talked about a little while ago, education and some economic uh, job training type of issues, as well as you know the relationship of citizens to the municipal governments. Will there be a hearing into the governor's handling with the National Guard? Oh, absolutely. In fact, I think the the committee meets tomorrow uh, to get organized, and I suspect that's something that's going to go on for several months. Do you want to talk about that at all, at least from your perspective as House Speaker? Well, I, yeah, I, I think it's trouble. I say I've gotten more emails, comments, and telephone calls on the state's lack of response after promises were made. And, and, you know, and these aren't from just the usual suspect. These are from um, a lot of first responders, okay, and then also just a lot of ordinary citizens that don't comment on anything. And, and I think what's really troubling to a lot of people is that I think everybody in the world, everybody in the world, knew that West Florissant Avenue in Ferguson was going to be ground zero the night a decision was made. And I think there was a lot of um, game planning that went on on when the decision was going to be released, what the response was going to be. You know, the governor made a point to declare a state of emergency a week early, came to St. Louis. He did press conferences on how the National Guard was going to be ready, willing, and able to step up when requested. Um, response plans were set up. And then by all accounts, when the time came for the time of the response plan, telephone calls were taken. Yeah, that was a troubling aspect about it, about how both uh, Ferguson Mayor James Knowles and Delwood Mayor uh, Reggie Jones apparently had no communication with the governor. And at least in Knowles' case, it's it's not the first time that's happened because he he personally was not given a heads up about the Ferguson Commission. Apparently, the city manager was given a very quick heads up about it. Have you got any insight on why there's just been little communication between the two? Does it have anything to do with politics, given that Knowles is a prominent Republican, or maybe the fact that he but, they doesn't want to be associated with the white leadership of Ferguson? Like, what's going on well, there? First of all, I, I don't think... James Knowles was a prominent Republican until maybe this happened. <laughs> right. <laughs> and people started talking well, about Well, he, was, he was a prominent Republican within Republican circles, although sure. not publicly. Right. But, but That's he, what I meant. He holds a nonpartisan office. Correct. And, and it, it shouldn't make any difference mm. whether. But, you know, right. as, as, as Knowles said, and, you know, I told the mayor he shouldn't take it personally. It's how the governor kind of treats everybody. <laughs> and apparently he made that comment and a Democratic senator told him that. But right. continue. No, continue. But I mean, I, yeah. I, I, think, I think that's pretty much across the board. I mean, I, I think this governor would find that if he gets out and he actually communicates in a meaningful way, don't send letters after the fact or send letters on road funding that says I'm going to have a solution and a comprehensive study done and two and a half weeks over the holidays, and then here's my response, and I'll work with me. I think if he'd actually engage people in a meaningful way, I think he'd find there are people that are ready, willing, and able to help with some of these difficult situations. But but these uh, the, the, this way of the, this non 
communication during a crisis like this um, isn't helpful and isn't productive. I mean, I know the governor gets a lot of accolades on what happened, how he handled Joplin. Well, Joplin, the, the enemy was gone after 10 or 15 minutes, and it was a question of controlling how do you rebuild buildings and get emergency response. Here, this requires dealing with, with people. Yeah, and to be fair, yeah. you know, many officials in Joplin were Republican, too, and I don't think he had a problem talking Go with them. Helping them. Right, but, so that, that's so my I, point. So yeah, why, why yeah. have a problem with Knowles? I, I think the issue is not Republican or Democrat. I think it's the ability to interact with people and, and, and to interact with people where you can't completely control the message. And, and the events of Ferguson were messy, okay? And, you know, I, I keep thinking of, you know, a, a leader who had some of the response. If you remember George Bush after, you know, the Twin Towers were down. That was a messy situation, yes. too. You didn't know what was coming up. You didn't know something else. But, you know, he got up there, got there in a bullhorn and <laughs> said, I'm here. I'm in charge. I'm taking responsibility for what happens one way or the other. That comforted a lot of people and pulled people together to get through a crisis. This is done through controlled news conferences, news releases, and then not returning telephone calls. It, that just doesn't, it doesn't work. Have you and he, had, have you and the governor had any communications on anything? I'm not talking just about Ferguson here. How would you characterize your relationship with the governor? Very distant and hands off. I mean, you know, he, he doesn't, you know, once I'm not going to turn this into a gripe, but the, the style of communication doesn't change. Yeah. Well, that's going to be my next question. It's like you have, I, I had to correct myself in the intro because before last week you had 118, a representative Torpy is resigning and yeah. it's uncertain whether he'll be replaced with a Republican. I'm sure you're going to try very hard, but it was Lavoda's district beforehand, so it's Correct. not it's not like a super safe Republican district. But the point is, 117 Republicans. When is, you only need 100. When you only need 109, how does that kind of change your mentality when you're dealing with the governor who may veto some things? And now you have a situation where you don't have to necessarily scrape for every single vote to override a veto, especially if you have some Democratic stragglers on your hands. Oh, I I, I think to be successful, I, I don't think you can go into any policy issue with that being the assumption. Yeah. Okay. And and I think you have to constantly work your membership and work with your membership on what you can pass and, and what you can override. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd certainly rather have 117 than 109. You know, when you had 109, I, I'd have one or two members that could hold this up or that sort of thing on an override. So we certainly have more more of a cushion there. But I, I don't think that necessarily makes makes it makes it any easier on dealing with the governor. I'm not sure that really factors into what he thinks. Because if you keep in mind most of the items that we overrode him on during the last veto override, I think it was something like 60 or 70 different items yes. that the House voted. Virtually every single one was with a broad bipartisan support. Right, because a lot of them were budget items. and But, you know, but, but, he, other but ones even on were. the substantive, yeah. a bunch weren't. I mean, yeah. I, I, I probably only a handful were done on straight party line yeah. issues. Um, but I, I think there's some issues like on, on tort reform and some other things I think we're much closer right. to be able to override him with what we have. Now, what about right to work? Is that going to come up or not? Well, I think What's we're going to have a 
very robust discussion on that also. Again really? Okay. So is, it, 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 will you be pushing it as much as I know that had been a key thing for your predecessor? Oh, I think it's a key thing for a lot of people in the house. Okay. Um, you know, the, the question on right to work, and I, I think someday Missouri will be a right to work state. There's a lot of the states around us are. It's trending that way. I think if there's a Republican governor, yeah, we will be right to work. Uh, so the question is, is what's the best path to get there? That was going to be what I was going to say. I mean, the pathway to get there with a Democratic governor is difficult because, you know, you probably have to put it on a ballot initiative. Um, there's there's also the possibility it could be filibustered in the Senate and you may not have the veto-proof majority there or even in the House. We don't know. But I think with a Republican governor, the veto question kind of becomes out of play because both Catherine Hannaway, yeah, Catherine Hannaway and Tom Schweik, and I assume if he wants to run too, Blaine Luke Demeyer, I think are all pro right to work. I would so. have to imagine anybody that would win a nomination in a Republican primary would yeah, be right to work. Exactly. So, so on to another issue. Sure. I know. I know. Within the past week, Attorney General Chris Coster testified before the House. I know this. You know, you didn't organize this. This right. was this was your uh, your predecessor. Um, but it, you know, it was dealing with ethics issues. Sure. Uh, New York Times investigation that you know found a, a rather cozy relationship between him and, and lobbyists who, and other attorney. In fairness, other attorneys yes, general, other states the, too. throughout the nation. Yes, yeah, but he um, was highlighted. Yes, he was. He was very prominent within that story. I mean, what are your thoughts on on that story? But on a larger issue, you know, what's the likelihood that the legislature? considers ethics reform this session? Well, I, I, I think when you're talking ethics reform, I, I approach it from, from the standpoint that the, probably the most important thing you can do is, is transparency. Okay? Um, everything else is arbitrary. So, so when you look at whether you have contribution limits or caps or whatever it is you want to call it or, or you know, gift limits or caps or whatever it is, the most important element on that is that things be transparent and open, where you can come on and people can log on to a computer, hit the website, and see what people are up to. Okay, I think that that's the number one principle, and I think that's what was probably, you know, most controversial about the situation with Coster, is that you don't know what matters the attorney general is considering. Okay, or the motivations by doing the General Assembly, it's fairly, fairly open. You know what bills are filed. You know what bills die. You know what bills pass. You know how people vote. You don't know what the Attorney General is investigating, or the reasons why something was settled or not settled, or why it was settled for this amount of money. So I think that's that's the backdrop. That being said, <clears throat> you know we're going to do some things in the rules in the House this year to. Address and this was long before the the Chris Coster situation. We're going to address offsite committee dinners. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, we are going to get rid of issue development committees, which have been used in the past to hide mm-hmm. or to not hide's probably not the right word, but to, yeah. to to mask gifts and whatnot. So so we're going to get rid of those committees. I I want to look at a revolving door policy where you can't leave uh, the General Assembly and become a lobbyist, and there should be a cooling off period on that. Uh, so I think that's something we're going to look look hard at, too. And if people want to have a discussion on contribution limits, I would be open to that. But 
the, you know, the dirty little secret on contribution limits. Is that they don't work. Well, and, well, well m- money finds its way in, but, right. every, but everyone wants I'm a I'm sorry to be it. that blunt or cynical, but look at the federal system. Right. I mean. Right. So, so, so everybody wants to carve out so they can spend the money how they want to do it. So mm-hmm. the minute you say, let's have a limit, well, but the unions, you can't touch how the unions or, do this. Or, you know, there's, you there are super PACs or correct. there are 527s or any now, of those I, things. I think one thing we can do, which is, which is interesting, I've, you know, I, I think there's a lot of concern over the – C fours and the yeah, super packs. Yeah, in fact, yeah, I've done is, some talks about that. Right, is whether or not, and I, I think we probably can. And I think one thing we're going to look into is whether we, whether or not we can require disclosure of who donates and how the money's. But being that spent. was an idea that was proposed like two years ago by both Richardson, Representative Richardson and Barnes, and it never got anywhere. What happened there? There. Okay. Is, is there any so, reason – is it just too difficult to get through the law or something like so that? So just for our listeners, yeah. 501c4s are social welfare nonprofits. They can give as much money as – they can spend their money as they please and they don't have to disclose their donors. That's what's yes. particularly and appealing about them. And 501c6s are also yeah. being used. Well, what they are – I mean yeah. but m- both more, of more them specifically, don't have they're, to, they're yeah. issue advocates. Correct. Right. Right. So, so they can yeah. come in and say, you know, tell – your state rep or this, yeah. they're bad on this, you know, yeah. or yeah. voting, you know, without, so, so they're not allowed to advocate for or against yeah. but they specific. Can, but they can frame it in such a way yeah. right, for to example, make you look pretty bad. For example, back in 2012, one of those committees was used by opponents of Lieutenant Governor Kinder to attack them in a very salacious right. way. And it was also used for a couple of other things. And after that happened, and the reason I brought that up, because that was 2012, there were some Republicans who saw that as well. When we repealed campaign contribution limits in 2008, the reason we did it was because we wanted to do it in the name of transparency. And the fact that you couldn't see the donors kind of chafed against that idea. And one of the difficulties behind that that was kind of alluded to was just making sure you write it in a way to where – you know, it's precise or something like that. I don't know if that's the concern about doing that, but it it was proposed two years ago and nothing happened well, with I mean, it. Well, so Citizens United, I don't think we can. Yeah, we can control the limits that go into something like that. But yes. I do think that if they're advocating for or against a ballot issue or another matter, that we can require campaign style reporting. So, so disclosure is a little bit different than. Controlling the limits on so I, right. so I, I, th- yeah, I think Coster actually is endorsing even that part. You yes, know, yeah. transparency. All right, I'm going to have to cut us off here, unfortunately. But to close us out here, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. Jason, you can be followed on Twitter. Jay Rosenbaum and Joe at Jay Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. And you can be followed on Twitter as well, I believe. Jay Deal Jr. Very good. Well, we will be back next week. Until then, so long.